In this particular reading, uh, there are two occasions where the friends uh, speak. Uh, both times they are asking uh, the woman a question. You'll find that in chapter 5, verse 9, and chapter 6, and verse 1. So at the appropriate times, uh, the words um, will appear on the screen. Uh, so have a go at, at reading that aloud together. Uh, don't worry if it's not, not perfect, uh, as long as we're getting the, uh, the point of what's going on. Uh, most of this reading actually um, will be uh, Paula. There's not much uh, for me to read tonight. Uh, but when the, the words appear on the screen, uh, then uh, say those words together as a congregation. Okay. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hand dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh. On the handles of the bolt, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, and they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water's streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughter of Jerusalem. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. He browses among the lilies. And according to the Office of National Statistics, the average marriage in the United Kingdom uh, lasts 11.7 years. Uh, and in fact, the highest uh, uh, time that a married couple 
uh, divorce is during the fourth and eighth year of marriage. Uh, 42% of UK marriages end in divorce, according to their statistics. And the number one reason that is cited for divorce on, uh, the, uh, on the legal documents is on the grounds of unreasonable behavior. That's by far and away uh, the number one reason that is given uh, for divorce. And so I try to find out what does unreasonable behavior mean. And actually, the spectrum of unreasonable behavior is very, very wide indeed. Uh, you can go on the, on the one end to just, they're not spending enough time with me, right up to very serious uh, situations of abuse. It's a very uh, wide spectrum of what is classed as unreasonable behavior. It's quite worrying if you think about it, because if we are honest with ourselves, all of us have acted in unreasonable ways in our behavior, haven't we, in our marriages. All of us have been unreasonable because we are all sinners. But unreasonable behavior basically could be classed as selfishness. Not looking out for the needs of our spouse, but looking out for our own needs first. It is not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And in fact, if you uh, think about that word neighbor, what it literally uh, means in the breakdown of the word is near one. And our spouse, if we're married, is our nearest one, our nearest neighbor. And therefore, we need to be really loving each other more than ourselves. Now, that's not to say that divorce is the right response to all unreasonable behavior, but it is to say that we need to be aware of our own selfishness and the road to destruction that it can take us down if we do not uh, deal with it and we leave it unchecked. Not thinking about others and only thinking of yourself is a very dangerous road to be on. Now, it seems strange to mention this after chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. It's a very strange place to be because we left the couple in a delightful situation, an, an Edenic kind of uh, place where they were in. They were sampling the delights of married love, the man entering his garden, which the wife had given him. They were enjoying each other in what was a scene reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, where they were naked without shame. But just like the Garden of Eden, after naked without shame, there comes sin. And we may be thinking last time, as we looked at this, but I don't live in this garden anymore. And tonight we see that no longer do we live in Eden, but rather there are thorns in the garden. In any marriage, there are times of misunderstanding. There are times of selfishness and sin. Whilst a match may be made in heaven, it is not placed in heaven. We are here on a fallen and sinful earth. And in our relationships with Jesus, which, as we've looked through this song, we have recognized all marriages are pointing towards, so too we are not yet in heaven. And our selfishness impacts our relationship with Jesus 
and our relationship with one another. We have acted with unreasonable behavior, not just to one another. We have acted unreasonably to our wonderful Savior, Jesus. And that's what we're going to see as we go through this passage. And it begins uh, right away uh, in chapter 5, verses uh, 2 to 8, with the rejection of the beloved. So after the delights of uh, chapter 4, verse 16 to 5, verse 1... Uh, she, this woman, has another, it seems, dream. A little bit like chapter 3, if you remember uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, she was uh, all night long on my bed. She seemed to be having a dream there. Here, there seems to be another dream. In verse 2, it says, I slept, but my heart was awake. But again, whether it's a dream or not doesn't matter too much. This is poetry. It's not a story of a real event. But in, in, in this state where she's asleep but her heart's awake, there is a knock on the door. And it's her beloved. She says, listen, my beloved is knocking and he has a request. And look at his request in uh, verse 2. He says, open to me. Open to me. He wants intimacy with her. This is her husband now. He is requesting to be with his wife. But notice the affection that he has for her as he knocks. Look at what he calls her in verse 2. There's four, uh, uh, four uh, names he gives. My sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. And sister and darling, they speak of his relationship to her. If you remember, we have mentioned before that a sister uh, was a very close and friendly familial relationship. In that society, the brother-sister relationship, it wasn't sexual, but it was a very, a very close relationship. In fact, the closest relationship, perhaps, in that society. He wants intimacy with his closest friend. But dove and flawless one speaks of her beauty. So he wants intimacy with her closest friend and with one whom he is besotted with physically. But there's a problem He's shut outside. He's locked out. The hair being drenched through dew in the dampness of the night speaks of him being outside. And he wants to come in. It's raining, it seems. But she can't be bothered to get up. Look at verse 3. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? She's in bed. She is warm. It, uh, as I read this verse, what came to my mind uh, was when uh, we go camping uh, and you are asleep in your sleeping bag, all snuggled up, and it's the morning. And in the morning, you need to use the bathroom, yeah? But it's cold outside and the toilet is miles away and you don't want to get out of bed. So you hold it as long as you can because you can't be bothered to get up. You want to stay all nice and warm. It's not convenient to get up. And for her, it's not convenient right now. I don't want to get out of bed. I've, I've, just, got, I've just got washed. I've, I've gone into bed. I'm all warm. And you're going to be all wet. And it's just no, 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 no. Now, in one sense, I think we see perhaps a, a common marriage problem here, don't we? But the big point here is not intimacy even when you don't want to. The problem here is not so much sexual as much as relational. 
It's not the indifference to sex that's the problem here. It's the indifference to him. The indifference to him personally. In chapter 2, he called her and she rejected him because she did not want to leave her comfort zone. She didn't want to leave her home to go and be with him. She had good intentions. She said, later I'll come with you, but not yet. Here, the problem is a little bit different. It is just laziness. It's apathy. At its root, it's selfishness. One commentator has said that the tragic opposite of burning love is not necessarily fierce hatred. It can be simple, bored indifference to the desires and needs of the loved one. Not hatred, but bored indifference to the desires and needs of the loved one. How many of us in our relationships have been selfish, have made no effort? Now this can be sexual. Perhaps there's work that some of us need to do with that. But selfishness shows itself in a myriad of other ways too. Time with our spouses. Helping at home or helping with children. Talking, sharing how we feel. Reading scripture and praying together. Telling our children about Jesus. Doing our, and it, or doing our own thing. Regardless of how the other person feels, that's selfishness at times, isn't it? We can so very easily, in our relationships, become very lazy about the desires and needs of the one we have promised to love. But in our relationship with Jesus, he knocks on our door too, doesn't he? He wants intimacy with us, to to spend time with us, and we can't be bothered. How often does that happen in our relationship with Jesus? He comes to us, he wants to spend time with us, especially in the Bible and in prayer, and he comes to us and we say, literally, I can't be bothered to get out of bed, Jesus. Have I got to get up and read my Bible? Have I got to pray? I just want to hit the snooze. I just want to look at my uh, phone messages. I just want to do anything else but spend time with you. And then we lose the opportunity. I find it easier to read the newspaper than to sit and read the Bible. I can find it easier to do almost anything else than to get up and read the Bible. That's a common experience, isn't it? But really, it is down to selfishness and laziness. And over time, if that continues with Jesus, we can drift away and apathy can be the normal. Because we have an enemy that does not want us to engage with Jesus. We have an enemy that wants to turn us away from Jesus. And the easiest way that that can be done is when we're kept away from hearing from Jesus through his word. And there's a warning against this kind of attitude in what happens next. In verse 4, he retries. He thrusts his hand through the latch. There's an effort here to stir her emotions, and it works. She is stirred, in verse 4, her heart begins to pound for him. 
So she has a change that's gone on. She now wants him. And so in verse 5, she goes to the door to open it for her beloved, but she's fumbling around because there's myrrh on the handle of the bolt. What seems to have happened, uh, myrrh, by the way, is is a perfume. If you remember in chapter 1 and verse 13, it was a perfume that she wore. And he seems to have left her some on the lock, perhaps as a blessing. He's not angry with her. He still wants her, and he shows love for her, which is a lovely reaction, actually, isn't it? In our, in, if you think about our relationships, when we uh, suffer any kind of rejection, what's our response? It's so often to turn and get angry and to start rejecting back. But this man here leaves a blessing on the lock, but the problem for her is that the blessing delays her further so that when she opens the door... It says uh, in verse 6, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. He's gone. And it says, my heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but I could not find him. I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The heart sinking uh, is such a deep anguish that it is like a death. That's the language that's being used here. It's the way you would feel when someone dies. And she feels this because she recognizes that because of her selfishness, she's opened the door and he is gone and she is now feeling isolated and separated from her beloved. And like the last time she had a dream, after the last time she rejected him, she looks for him but cannot find him. She calls for him but receives no answer. And so she feels, in verse 6, a separation. The selfishness has led to a separation. And then in verse 7, it gets worse. There's separation in verse 6, and in verse 7, there is suffering The watchmen found me, it says, and as they made their rounds in the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. It's like uh, she's looking for him in the city, like she did before, and like before, she sees watchmen there. We've met them in chapter 3. They were men that patrolled the city, and they were keeping order. And it's likely that they thought either she was causing trouble as a prostitute or they wanted her to go back home and they dragged her, literally kicking and screaming, bruising her and hurting her as they took her home. But whatever exactly happened to her, the reasons behind this being beaten up, at the end of it, she is left with nowhere to turn in verse 8 probably too bruised to do anything else. And so she charges the daughters of Jerusalem to help her find him. In her state, she asks them to tell her man that she is faint with love. She needs him to be with her. That's what it means to to be faint with love. I'm, I'm, I'm faint with love. I need him to be with me. I can't live without this man. And she says, if you find him, I charge you, if you find him, what will you tell him? Tell him about me. Tell him how I'm feeling. Tell him I need him. You see, selfishness in our relationships can lead to very serious consequences. 
It leads to separation. At worst, that's the tragedy of divorce. But even at best, if we're never looking out for the needs of someone else, there is a drifting apart. You can be living together, but really apart. And don't think for one moment that this cannot happen to you. We need to make an effort to love our spouses. And even here with her, she's made this uh, rejection of him, but she makes an effort, doesn't she? She goes for a risk to make it right. She goes out into the city. Even if that causes her to be beat up, she goes for it because she wants to be back with this man. And I think we see here that to, to break a relationship is a lot easier than to mend it, isn't it? It's a lot easier to break a relationship than it is to mend a relationship. To mend it takes a whole lot more effort than to break it. This applies, of course, to marriage, but also, I think there's a word here, in our friendships, isn't there? In our family and in our church relationships. Jesus commands his followers to love their neighbors as themselves. And we need to repent of our selfishness and love others. And when we can't be bothered with Jesus, when we think about our relationship with him, when we ignore his word, we end up isolated and lonely. Now, that's not to say that we lose our salvation, but lack of intimacy with Jesus ends up us feeling miserable because it's not what's best for us. And God often allows us to go through experiences of withdrawal of fellowship from him because he wants us to get to a point of calling on him. And I think that's the point of these watchmen as well. God disciplines us to help us to see the impact of our rejection of him so that we become desperate for him for our good. I mean, the New Testament talks about the, the discipline of our father for our good, so that we turn back to him for our good. And so as we think about our relationship with Jesus, and we think how we can be lazy in that relationship, I think there's a, an application here to get back into spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer, passionately seeking God for our joy. We think of discipline or spiritual disciplines as a, as a miserable thing, but it's for our joy that we engage with Jesus so that we come back to the intimacy that we saw in the previous part of the poem. It's for our joy, for our good, that we engage with Jesus. But it takes effort, doesn't it, to do that? Well, when we are engaging with Jesus, and when we are reading our Bibles and we're praying, what are we doing? What are we looking for? We want to seek and see Jesus. And in the poem here, in this song, she enlists, in verse 8, the help of her friends to find her beloved. And as she enlists their help, she has an opportunity to think of her beloved when they ask her a question. Look at verse 9. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? And they, so they ask her this question. You're asking us for help. You want us to help find him. 
So you tell us, why should we? How is he better than all others? And then in verses 10 to 16, she gives such a compelling description of her beloved that in chapter 6, verse 1, they say, well, where has he gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him too? Her description is so compelling that they say, well, we'll help you find him. Where is he? I want to see this one. They are so struck that they want to see him too. And then, so this description in, uh, ch- in chapter 10 to 16 is her recognition of the beloved. It's not a, a, a description here for an identity parade where she, you can line up a whole bunch of men and say, well, that's the one. This is a description of what makes him better than all others to her, what he means to her. And in this uh, description here, I find four aspects of the kind of man this is. And this is a, a man that all men should aspire to be, and the kind of man that all women should be longing for. And the first thing we see in verses 10 to 13 is his attractiveness. His attractiveness. He is described as radiant and ruddy. He talks of his complexion, but more than that, King David was described in this way. This is her king. Among 10,000 others, this man would stand out. She speaks of his head, his hair, his eyes, his cheeks, which might well be his beard, and his lips. Notice the words she used to describe this attractiveness. Gold head, black wavy hair, dove-like white eyes. His cheeks, again, probably his beard, it smells nice, as does his mouth. He is attractive. Now, there is a point, of course, that we do need to be attractive to our wives. We, We need to perhaps work on our appearances. But there's also a recognition I think we have to make It certainly came to my mind as I was reading this, that we don't always look like perhaps we used to. I was struck by this, especially uh, in verse 11, because whilst my hair is still wavy when I let it grow, it certainly isn't black as a raven anymore. But the link here, remember, you can go back to chapter 1, verse 3, where she talks of his character being like perfume poured out. She wants to, in in the very first uh, chapter of the book... She wants to kiss him because his love is more delightful than wine. Uh, She talks of his perfume uh, being uh, fragrant, but your name is like perfume poured out. So she, she loves the way he smells. She wants to kiss him. She loves the way he looks, but it's his name that is like perfume poured out. And attractiveness does work its way from the inside outwards. I've said before when we looked at the first chapter, someone can perhaps look very pretty on a poster, but when you get to know them, they can be very ugly indeed. And so don't worry if your hair is no longer black as a raven. It's our character that we need to be working on to be attractive. So first of all, is attractive. The second talks of his strength in verses 14 and 15. He's got arms that are are rods of gold. His body is ivory. His legs are pillars. 
and set on bases. His appearance is, in verse 15, like Lebanon, which was known for its cedars, which are strong. It talks of his strength. Now, of course, we know strength is not all about muscles and macho-ness. Real strength, and I think this is important for men, perhaps, especially to recognize, is more about faithfulness in hard times, holding on to truth, protecting and providing, saying the hard things that need to be said, and, and so much more. I think I'm safe to say as a man that a woman would much rather a man be strong in these ways than have biceps that they can't fit their arms around. This man is strong. Third, she speaks of his value. This is not necessarily one verse, but throughout this description, she talks of gold and jewels and spices and ivory and lapis lazuli. This man is of great value to her. And really, this value speaks of his uniqueness to her because he is hers and hers alone. He is unique to her in his value. This man is unique. He's not shared with other women. In, our, in, in today, online or otherwise, she does not flirt with other men wanting their attention because he is of the highest value to her. And then finally, the fourth uh, thing I, I, I see as I read this description in verse 16 is his tenderness. His tenderness. His mouth is sweetness itself. Again, we've mentioned this before, but if... Uh, if in uh, the song we read of the lips, it talks more of the physical description of the mouth. But when we think of the mouth, it's more of the words that are coming forth through the lips. The words that come from his mouth are sweet words. Men, are your words sweet to hear? How often our words can be destructive, can be harsh can be sarcastic, can tear down. Can your words be described by your spouse as sweetness itself? And to her, in verse 16, he is altogether lovely. Altogether lovely. And then I love at the end of this verse how uh, she just affirms how much she adores this man with the way she says, This, this man, this amazing man that I've just described, he is my beloved. He is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. She's described this man. She recognizes him again. She thinks of him and she says, yes, this is my man. He is mine. She's proud to have him as hers. Well, men, if you want to be described in this way, then you need to be this kind of man. But the focus isn't just on the man. This is the woman speaking about how she feels about this man. A recognition of who he is helps her, at the end of this section, see him return to her. The description here is so compelling for the daughters of Jerusalem that they want to find him, but it also stirs her heart. Verse 16 shows a heart that's been stirred. This man that I've just described. 
He is my beloved. He's my friend. She's speaking from a heart that has been stirred by the recognition of who he is. And when we feel that we can't be bothered, or we feel we can't be, we, we, we feel isolated, it's good to remember what you love about your spouse. It's good to remember those good times that you've had together. There's lots of descriptions about the woman in the song. And here is one about the man. And wives should feel this way about their husbands too. So there's a challenge on both sides. Remembering what we love about one another. But for the men to be this kind of man that your spouse can say this about. And I speak to the young men too, those who are not married. You are not going to wake up after your wedding and be this man. We need to be being this man now. And just as an aside, I, I did. I want to mention one thing because it was kind of bugging me as I was reading this. The, the, this is a uh, that the friends have asked, uh, "What is what is he like? Describe him." So that we, uh, why should we look for him? And so this is a public description of her spouse. And I want to just say a word about how we speak in public about our spouses. This woman is not afraid to say how wonderful her spouse is. But how often we hear jokes, complaints, uh, you know, just... Moaning about our spouses in our culture. Why don't we, when we're talking about our spouses, have words that are sweetness itself, so that when the person we spoke to goes away, they say, boy, they love each other, don't they? Why don't we speak of our spouses to show how much we love them, rather than just make jokes all the time? May our words be sweetness itself, not just to our spouses, but about them too. Well, how would you answer the question in verse 9 if you're asked to describe Jesus? How is Jesus Christ better than others? And friends, we need to have an answer to that question. And we need to have an answer for two reasons. First of all, for ourselves and other Christians... When we grow cold, when we can't be bothered, as we see here, when we are apathetic and lazy because we're not seeing Jesus, we need to recognize again who Jesus is. Because if we are apathetic and lazy, we're going to have no impact on God's kingdom. And when we're rejecting Jesus' invitations, we need to recognize again who he is. So we need to be recognizing him ourselves and speaking of him to one another as Christians. But we also need an answer for our world. Because the world is going to ask you, what's so special about Jesus? Why should I look for him? Why should I seek Jesus? They're going to ask you that question when you're at work, or around the table with your family, or your children may ask, well, why should I follow him rather than following all the other options that I have in the world? What are you going to say? Because our answer has got to be better than, well, he makes me feel good, or he makes my life better. Because they'll say, well, drugs do that for me. 
Or running makes me feel good. My charity work makes me feel much better. And so Jesus is compared to drugs or running or charity work. So what is the answer? Well, tell them what the word of God says about Jesus. Now, there's a place, of course there's a place, for personal testimony in evangelism. But we need to be careful about not making our witness all about us instead of Jesus. And so tell people about Jesus. When I'm struggling with apathy, or I'm living with sin, or I'm going through a trial, tell me of Jesus. When I'm on my deathbed, talk to me of Christ. And what we need to tell ourselves, each other, and our world is this. Jesus is attractive. Not just what he looked like physically. We don't know what he looked like physically. But look at the Gospels. Look at his character. Look at how he lived. Look at how he loved people. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at how he forgave. There has never been a more attractive man than Jesus. Tell them Jesus is strong. The world often portrays Jesus as weak. But the Bible tells us that the opposite is true. Take them to Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3 and tell them of how Jesus creates and sustains all things by his powerful word. Take them to the gospel accounts and show them how Jesus controls nature, raises the dead, heals the sick with just words and touches of his hand. Take them to Revelation chapter 1 and show them the risen Jesus with eyes of fire and a voice like the sound of rushing waters. Jesus Christ is powerful. Take them to the accounts of where he is returning and will judge the living and the dead. But show also his strength that enables him to endure the agony of the cross for us and how by his mighty power he raised from the dead. Show them that Jesus is valuable. Show how to God's people he is precious. Show how scripture declares that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Take them to Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20 and how all things revolve around him being the supreme head of all things. Show them that Jesus Christ is Lord and before him every knee will bow. He is more valuable and more precious than anything else. Show them that Jesus is tender. Yes, he's all-powerful, but he's also tender. Take them to the Gospels where he speaks and heals the le- to and heals the leper. Take them to John chapter 4 where he sits with the woman at the well, who all others have rejected, but Jesus speaks words of tenderness to her. Show how he speaks forgiveness to his enemies on the cross, and how he speaks forgiveness to us if we believe in him. Speak of how our tender Lord Jesus lavishes his love on us that we could be called children of God and that we can call God our Father. His mouth is sweetness itself. Jesus Christ is tender. And when you've shown Jesus Christ in these passages, in the the scriptures, when you've shown who he is, that he doesn't just make you feel good, he's all of these things. You can say to yourself, to your brothers and sisters, to your unbelieving friends and family, this is my beloved, 
This is my friend. How can we possibly stay cold when we recognize who Jesus is? So can I encourage you this week to get into the word and read of Jesus. Look at him. He is altogether lovely. And in chapter 6, verse 1, these friends are so excited now that they say, where has he gone? We'll find him. Well, let's pray for that response when we tell them of Jesus. Because if we show them this, they might not respond in this way, but we pray that they do. But then something weird happens in the song. They don't need to search for him anymore because in verse 2 of chapter 6, she knows where he is. We seem to see the return of the beloved. Well, look where he is in chapter, two, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather the lilies. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. He is in his garden. And we can safely assume, since the garden references before have talked of the woman, that he is now with her. It almost reads as if he's lost, she's lost something, but she's found it where it's supposed to be. That always happens in our house with shoes. We're trying to find the shoes, but they're always in the shoe cupboard. And even if we've looked in the shoe cupboard, we, we think, well, they're not there. But they always end up being there. It seems that kind of thing is going on in, in the poem. But actually, something different is going on. She feels a very real absence. But the man has never really left. She feels the absence, but he's never really left. And the reason he's not left is because he is committed to her. He is in a covenant relationship with her. So even when it feels absent, the real presence is always there. In our marriages, there are times of strain, And there are times of difficulty, but we must always be ready for restoration and forgiveness. Even when we're feeling separated, we need to be ready to return to one another. Like God is with us, we need to be willing to welcome back with open arms. Because in chapter 6, verse 3, we see a restoration to what it was before. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. In in chapter 4, verse 16 to 5, 1, there's a giving to one another of their bodies. And here we see again that they give themselves to each other fully. There's a restoration here after a rejection. And we need to be ready for that, to, to restore the relationships when things are strained and difficult. But this section has a happy ending. But what about those who have suffered the pain of divorce or are in marriages where the thorns in the garden don't seem to be shifting at all? Because there are those who suffer not that, and don't have the happy ending. Well, first of all, we are not in Eden anymore. The worst does happen, and it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when there is divorce, and it's a tragedy when we are in a marriage 
where there is isolation, where you are living apart even though you are together. So that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I think that's the first thing to say. That is not the way that God intends it to be. That is not the way that it is supposed to be. It's horrible. There may well be a restoration of relationship. After a divorce, there may even be a new relationship. But this passage doesn't give us answers as to what to do after divorce, or even what to do when there is a partner that does not seem willing to do anything, and they are being selfish. But what this passage does do is give us a greater comfort and intimacy that we are pointed towards. A greater comfort and intimacy than any earthly relationship can offer. This is where, again, we fix our eyes on our greater husband, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the husband that will never reject us. He will never divorce us. He is never selfish, but always works for our good. He is always there, even when we do not feel it. And he is the one with whom we look forward to a greater intimacy with in heaven than we could ever experience on earth. There isn't any easy answers to some of those marriage problems that seem to not go away. But there is hope because we look to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the rejected bridegroom whose praises we sing. Right now, there is an absence as Jesus is in heaven. And although we have the Holy Spirit, we are waiting for that day when Jesus will return and will be with him in our new bodies, in a new heaven and earth, forever. Where there will be a love story in a garden with no thorns, where we will live happily ever after. So fix your eyes there. On our great husband as our great hope. And until that day, whatever status we find ourselves in, whatever situation we come here tonight, let us commit to living for Jesus, for his glory, without apathy, without laziness, but with a passion and diligence that recognizes who he is until the day that he comes when we'll be with him forever. Let's fix our eyes heavenwards and let's look forward to being with Jesus face to face forever. Well, we're going to close with uh, a final song. Uh, the, the chorus in this song actually comes from chapter 5, verse 10, where it talks about being outstanding among 10,000. The chorus says, All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me, and the fairest of 10,000 in my precious Lord I see. So let's stand as we sing of our wonderful husband, Jesus Christ, and let us be encouraged with thoughts of him.